Welcome to Statmasters, where we teach you how to use Player Profiler to win at fantasy football and better evaluate players. My name is Aaron Stewart, and I'm a senior analyst at Player Profiler, and my co-host is Chris Bonagura, a fantasy intelligence network analyst for Player Profiler. And today, we have a special guest with us, Billy Jones. Billy, please tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Hi, my name is Bill Jones, or Billy Jones. Uh, I'm a CPA and data scientist, and I after finishing my master's was looking for a use case to explore a variety of different things. So as someone who's fascinated with football and fantasy football, there is no better medium to explore some of these skills. Um, over the last couple months, I've been putting out content and I'm really excited to go through a variety of different things today that are related to basketball. I love it. I love it. Um, Billy here. I came across a couple of his tweets a few weeks ago, and for anyone that's tuned in with me and Aaron for a while, will know that, um, well, should know that a lot of what he's put out definitely correlates with a lot of the things we've kind of said. And what's nice about Billy's work is it really does put the math behind a lot of these theories that we've said. Um, and he's also, there's probably been a good three or four concepts that Billy's introduced to me that I knew were somewhere in my brain. But I wasn't actually actualizing them. And and after reading it, it did change my game. And I feel like very much for the better. And it's a very nice combination of advanced things to think about, but presented in a very palatable way. So I, I say we just get started with this first article, Association Rule Mining for Best Ball Transactions. Tell us about it, Billy. Yeah, thank you. So um, this first concept, it was something I've been itching to leverage for sports for a while. Um Association rule mining is a very classic data science technique where you look at a set of items that are grouped together, a transaction, and see what kind of interactions and commonalities that come together. Um, in the piece, I explain there's a just where we go, the very basic concept of association rule mining. If you had a grocery store and they sold a thousand things in a day, a um, hundred of them potentially were like chips and beer, right? Um, but then another 60 or 69 of them are tortilla, are, are uh, salsa. You can leverage the combination of those chips and beer to see what is the likelihood of a salsa being a part of that transaction as well. And it really was used when grocery stores were designing how to put places, things together to get, okay, these items and these items are highly purchased together we maybe want to put them close to each other or we put them far apart and have people walk through the store appropriately so when i was trying to figure out how to leverage this really cool like method i thought this was an obvious use for best ball when you think about each draft as a transaction there are 18 picks there are players that are in combination um going to either have advanced or not advanced so we've, we commonly see advance rates for individual players. By using this method, we're going to be able to see advance rates um, in combination of players, um, which is really pretty powerful. Um, example that we you see leveraged in the piece is the, the Mark Jackson and Mark Andrews and how they combine as like a leverage piece um, rather than just if you're looking at them individually, which is a really powerful way to look at combinations. So that is the methodology is how we were going about with this. And then in the data we looked at 
lower the best advance rates by one player rules and the worst play, um, then two player rules. So combinations of just singular stacks and then three player rules. So three players combined together and looking at which were the most common and how those advanced as well as just the pure highest advance rate um, combinations as well. It was actually quite fascinating because we all see the the single player advance rates, but the combination combinatorial advance rates really kind of stood out um, because when you hit on two or three players in a draft, your advance rates can go nuclear. Um, as you uh, as we kind of we saw on the tweet that the the best we always know that picking the best players um, is what we need to do to advance, but it really isn't. 18 of the best players it's two or three of the correct picks and everything else needs is a structure that really is set up for the playoffs but the the regular season advance rate really can get up into that 50 60 70 percent for when certain players are combined together for example josh jacobs and tyree kill last year um got through at a 73 percent rate um no matter what help else happened with the roster um that those two points pushed you through um, which was fascinating. Another amazing point that I saw from this is when we get to the, those three-player stacks, how not the most common three-player stacks had really low ceiling on terms of advance rate um, of the top 20 or 25. We didn't really see anything go nuclear. Um, the best we saw was really came from Josh Allen, Stefan Diggs, um, or uh, Trevor Lawrence, and then stacking up uh, – Kirk, Christian Kirk and Evan Ingram, but we didn't really see anything go out of control. Um, where we saw really nuclear advance rates is with the more uncommon pairings. Um, and why that happens, I got a lot of different theories. Um, but I really think that the overstacking um, is something that I'm seeing a lot of. And I think that this kind of puts into question the overstacking of teams Um especially with expensive picks that you're kind of limiting that, that true like nuclear potential of teams to, to get through. So um, fascinating piece here that I went, kind of went through and I enjoyed leveraging a, a, a data science technique that I, what wasn't like an obvious uh, um, fit into the sports world. No, this is, this is great stuff. It's, it's something that's, that makes sense. And that when asked the last few months about stacking and such, I've always said like, listen, like, Stacking the same team, what benefit are you really getting from having a quarterback and all three receivers? And you had mentioned this before the show, so I'll credit you with the idea that um, a lot of the reason why you maybe see this minus EV on when you have too many players from one team is the idea that people are forcing it with very suboptimal ADP d decisions. Because looking at your top advance rate with minimum 3% stack frequency, three player stacks. You do have AJ Brown, Devante Smith and Jalen Hurts had a great advance rate, but people forget AJ Brown was a third round pick. He was undervalued. Jalen Hurts was a six round pick. He was un undervalued. Same with Devante Smith. They were incredibly cost effective. So to stack them, even to force this, the stack, you weren't sacrificing your most valuable picks and they all also individually were high hit rate players where your stack with Josh Allen, Stephon Diggs was way more effective with Tony Pollard than it was with Gabe Davis because we were forcing Gabe Davis into the fourth round, which was obviously a bad pick. And I, I do think that 
people should read through this piece in full and really look at some of these combinations because it gives a lot of it, it really pushes this idea that the best stacks aren't necessarily within a team rather it's it's a stacking of certain players like you you have here Jacobs Mahomes and Tyreek Hill was a 90% advance rate but you know who's going to really pe- like pick out three successful players that often probably not many I think the top two is a lot more interesting like if you just knew better on Josh Jacobs and Tyreek Hill last year and you were absorbing them a ton in combination you had a great time in best ball tournaments so certainly I think brings a lot of logic and positivity to how stacking can work in your favor rather than how it's just popular Aaron how how are you feeling about this yeah, my takeaway on this is, of course, in best ball stacking in the last couple of seasons has been insanely popular, almost to the point of what you talked about is that people want to go, cool, I've got a quarterback and I've got the top three receivers and the opportunity costs usually hurts you because you're reaching on players. I think my my major takeaway, too, was seeing the the uh, the stacks with QBs and their weapons that did work when it was multiple weapons. It was Trevor Lawrence, Christian Kirk, Evan Ingram. It was Jalen Hurts, A.J. Brown, and Devontae Smith, where they weren't super expensive. You could usually get them probably at a discount, a slight discount, or a little bit below ADP. And my takeaway was going, hey, instead of forcing the stack, usually people force the stack and they build the roster around that stack it's approach the draft like you would in a redraft league take just focus on talent it seems kind of simple right simple concept of draft talented players and then just when the stacks do fall to you awesome and then really you you can just go with one quarterback and one of his weapons you don't have to do the multiple weapons it's got to make sense don't reach for it that's been a key theme that Chris and I have talked about on when talking about best ball strategy is look like players have ADPs. We don't hate players. We talked last week about Damian Pierce. We didn't like him two months ago, but he got cheaper. We like him. There are things to like. So with that, with players, just draft them at good, good ADPs, good cost. And it's really kind of changed my, my thinking too, of when I think about starting best ball a few years ago, like, this is the complete backwards way of my thinking on that, but it just makes sense, doesn't it? Makes a lot of sense. But let's move on to on to this next one. We'll go with uh, the best ball mania magic number is. And Billy, I know this one, it's all about how many points do you actually need to advance? Let's hear about it. Yeah, so with we can't... I, I'm, all, I'm big on pointing my data science or my studies towards the end output, right? And the way, the way to advance out of your, your pool is to score points at a certain threshold, right? So I wanted to see where that, what those numbers were in terms of thresholds you need to hit to build out, to, to get, to have a team that could make it to that next round. So um, at first I looked at it at a macro level, just as a team total. Um, and then broke it down by position groupings to see where which positions were more influential and and so on. So um, what what I found was that at a team total level, the minimum threshold you're going to need to to be in somewhat of contention, 1,600 points across the entire season. 
to really have a chance, you're looking at like 1700. And if you're at 1800, you're through 99% of the time, not an exact number, but at a a figure where more often than not, you're through. And those distributions, there is definitely a window where it's a little sketchy, but you get and these figures held at BBM2 and BBM3 to where the 1600, 1700 numbers were getting you through year over year. Um, so what that breaks down to is roughly 115 points a week um, across a 14-week season, um, which I think is important to put in context when you're looking at the way your roster is about to score. Um, then I broke it down by position, starting off with quarterbacks. Um, it's interesting to see that in BBM2, um, we definitely didn't see the crazy shift towards how, or how powerful the elite quarterbacks were. Because in BBM3, we saw a massive shift in the distribution where um, those those elite, the high, the teams that scored a lot of points at the quarterback position were also really advancing at a much more higher rate. You can see a big blip in that distribution, whereas the BBM2 distribution is more of just a slight shift. Um, then when you move down to the tight end position, it no shock to anyone, scoring distributions, they're almost identical from teams that advanced that, that didn't advance. Um very, very, very minor shift towards those teams that were advanced to the playoffs. And this really shows that you have those elite tight ends. Um, they can be an awesome lever to set up for the playoffs, but they don't inherently help you advance to the playoffs. Um, so there is some detriment there but or non-benefit that, that comes to your team when it comes to those your tight end scoring. Um, which these these scoring distributions really helped to visualize and show. Then I looked at the wide receiver and running back position together because I really think of them as these positions that work in tandem, right? Um, those onesie positions, you have a single player that you're filling, a single roster spot that you're filling, um, and you will build a room to fill those, but you're really still individually, you're, you're playing an individual player. Whereas these running back and wide receiver positions, since you're build, playing multiple players each week, the rooms that you set up and the scoring that you set up um, that you get from those rooms is going to be impacted based on how your roster is constructed. So I wanted to look at them together. Again, um, what we saw here is pretty notable shifts on the teams that were able to make it to the playoffs, had much higher scoring. And I did present distributions here, but I also presented it in a scatter plot, which I thought was particularly interesting where you could see that you can you can build it, it differently. You can have running backs that cook. You can have wide receivers that cook. You can there's different ways to get to that number, but you ultimately did need to get to a common number together. And that common number as like a as a total is about 1,200 points, um, and roughly equates to 85 points per week. Um, which so 85 points from your um, positional players and then your 30 points roughly a week from your onesies which seems obtainable but that's your bare minimum got it to be able to get there so across your two two running backs three receivers and a flex spot you're really going to have to pull about 14 15 points a game um, for, per position and that's interesting context when looking at like how you're going to put a team together and have all these high boom players and having some also floor players as well. It's an interesting way to like think about building position rooms rather than individual players picks. So that was that piece. Um, Yeah. 
No, yeah, it's um, I it's it it's very interesting context um to look at. I like that you did it year to year. It is something I've said for a long time that advancing teams have a certain level of quarterback floor because if you think about it, you know, there's going to be five or six quarterbacks that really just dominate scoring and then you you can make combinations of cheaper quarterbacks that also accomplish that scoring, but you're not even necessarily competing for your 12 team division to advance if you're if you're already behind at quarterback. And it's it's very interesting to see year to year. I think a big reason why you see this dip is because last year middle quarterback was just absolutely the worst thing. So you lost Lamar. He basically had a useless year for you. And then every single quarterback after Hurts until Fields seemingly busted. I mean, Tom Brady couldn't play anymore. Aaron Rodgers wasn't helpful. Matthew Stafford dropped off. Russell Wilson dropped off. Dak missed time. Kirk was fine, but it's Kirk. You know, you everyone in the middle was terrible. And the guys that ended up being good were Geno, Jones, and Fields, who were hyper late, and Jared Goff. And there's always going to be value in quarterbacks late, but it's normally not that that extreme and we've definitely corrected quarterback ADP a lot this year I think you will see a scenario where you can succeed a little more in in the middle but there is a bit of middle ground in my mind where what we saw in best ball mania 3 is partially a new trend because quarterbacks throw for more yards than than ever now the amount of quarterbacks throwing for over 3,500 yards is far more than decades past and you have so many mobile quarterbacks but because there's so many options too it definitely levels out a bit. And we've been saying for years, like if you're going to have any position be subpar, it's tight end. You see plenty of teams that advance with awful tight end rooms. And like you said, and you do have another piece that brings credit to it. The elite tight end gives you leverage in the three playoff rounds because elite tight ends so often find themselves top five in scoring where your non elite tight end is going to have spikes, but they're typically not chained. But when it comes to over 14 weeks, most tight ends will help you get there. And the 15 points per week from each player at receiver and running back is a very interesting point of view. And I think it really hammers down the idea of not overstacking one of those positions. You know, you don't need six receivers through six rounds. You don't need four receiver, uh, four running backs through four rounds. You're, you're, you need to fill those other spots too. Yeah. And a lot of times people will focus on a roster build. Oh, I've... This is a two quarterback, five running back, blah, blah, blah type build, right? They they think too much about how they will divide those 18 rounds into the four positions. And I liked the visuals. We're huge on that with Statmasters of showing the visuals. Um, and this helps. I think you had mentioned this maybe towards the end of the article of going, hey, instead of focusing on like the team structure, the roster construction that really what you need to do in looking at these graphs is go, how do my position rooms look? Uh, when you talked about the 1200 points between two running backs, three receivers and a flex spot over 14 weeks, 85 points, that's about 14 points per player is sitting there going in your draft. Hey, am I, am I hitting that from, from each of my spots or maybe you know, when, when you get towards the tail end of the draft, like instead of going, oh, I need a running back or oh, I need a receiver, just looking at those positions combined and going, which guy 
is going to make sense with this current team build that I'm going that can help me accomplish what I need to get in terms of points. And yeah, with tight ends, we will get into that a little later. But yeah, the top tight ends, uh, a little bit of a tricky game to play. Like that's the one position that definitely doesn't help you advance the most out of the three, but we'll get into it for the playoffs. Like it's, if you play your cards right, it can help. But yeah, just an, another way of thinking of best ball in a different or advanced way. And yet funny enough with the visuals, a simplistic way that makes sense. Like best ball is all about points. Literally on player profiler, players have an advanced stat called best ball points added yeah and i like too how a lot of these concepts work in theory because if you i'm sorry work in conjunction with one another because if you think about the last article one of the very high advance rate three player stacks was mahomes hill and jacobs right if you had those three you were advancing at, at, at a high rate and then when you look at this article logically it makes sense mahomes scored 423 fantasy points he alone filled your quarterback advance rate and most weeks, Jacobs and Hill combined for about 40 to 50 fantasy points. Two players were essentially filling three of your 15-point-per-week spots in this combined running back wide receiver grouping. You 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 got a massive edge. So I definitely enjoy the the two so far. We'll check out this third one. We have um, which position sizzled during best ball summer 21 and 22. Billy, let's hear all about it. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll move through this one kind of quickly. Um, this one for me was a, a fun exercise as well as we're looking at that binary outcome of did I or did I not advance. So um, very easy way to look at a binary outcome is through logistic aggression um, where you would pass in a couple different variables um, and as and then look at the as, how does that stack up as in terms of did it or did it zero not one did it pass get it through so using logistic regression what i did is used looked at by position scoring and which positions had the most impact and it turned out that actually all positions were relevant and impactful um that is a singular individually statistic individually statistic individually significant statistically uh mouthful um and so as what they are broken down individually, um, all important, but when you combine them in your interaction, so just when you combined two running back and receiver and you missed on the other two, um, you, there was nothing there. There's no combination of you hit on these two positions, you punt the other two, that's going to work and get you through. That's not going to, that wasn't what I found, but I did find when you hit on three and punted a position, um, you're actually able to, that was statistically significant in terms of advancement, um, which again, kind of adds on to what we have been talking about previously about roster construction and building out important big rooms that can get you through um, to those later rounds. So um, this was a fun one for me, more of a math driven conversation, um, but adding on to what we've been working through so far. Yeah, I think it just, it builds further into that idea that you can have a weak tight end room and be fine. Last year, you would have seen an exaggeration in like a zero RB methodology. And I think the way ADP is shaking out, we can take this and move forward and say, hey, because they're all so expensive, maybe I don't need to overstuff receiver into my early team if I can have really good running backs and security at quarterback and tight end. I like the idea that you're not going to hit on all four positions, but you hit on three, 
you'll probably make it. Yeah, again, with like punting positions too, like it, it had me questioning a lot about both the zero RB and the zero wide receiver uh, builds that, that some people will do and just kind of plant their flags on it and going, oh man, especially when you brought up like, hey, you can do three positions and punt the fourth position. That is ideal. But if you punt two positions, uh, I'm paraphrasing in your article there, but it was going, there's no advantage. There's no advantage. It's like, oh, maybe all those zero RB, zero receiver teams that might also be waiting on, say, tight end, uh, that should open their eyes a little bit and going, I might need to try some different things here. Because the the other thing, too, is just going, I was stunned to find that all four position groups were significant. I was reading it and was like, oh, we're going to find out which group is the weakest one. But there's the numbers, right? Like, you know, for the people arguing one way or the other on which one's more important, running backs, receivers, Billy's article here, like they're all important. You have to have balance. And yeah, Chris, as you mentioned too, like with the recent trend we're seeing with receiver ADPs that we covered on the last Statmaster show with wide receivers going up, it's okay to pivot, get a running back that would normally be going around earlier there. Like, they're equally important for your teams. And again, it's going to point towards punting tight end, in my opinion. Yeah, you have to take stabs. But you, like, you, you, you see those, those psychos that through five rounds will have like two quarterbacks and an elite tight end. You know, like they'll go like Kelsey, Mahomes, and Burrow. You, you're punting too much, right? You're, you're now leaving right, back, uh, running back and receiver left to hang. And this is, you know, it's to visualize this kind of stuff. What, what Billy does and to confirm, hey, like the numbers the last two years confirm this idea of balance. Yes, you need to take stabs at early quarterbacks. You need, you need to take stabs at early tight ends. You need to weave them into these rosters. But everything needs to be done in a balanced way. You don't necessarily want to leave anything hanging. And at the very worst, one position group gets fragmented together in the later rounds. Now, how late do you start actually building those groups? Billy has other information on that on his blog you know, when, when is the right time to, you know, how, how long can I push off running back before the running back room is too weak and wide receiver, so on and so forth. And I think quarter, I think you, you would find that quarterback and tight end are the two where, you know, you, you, it's going to be less often, but you can successfully scrap them later on. Like last season, if, if your running back room was Justin Fields, Daniel Jones, and Jared Goff, you did just fine. And your most expensive one was the 14th round, but how many people actually did that? Pretty much just Pat Kareen. So, you know, and he won. Um, but let, let's look at this next one. This one's for the bye week. One thing, one thing before we oh, move on. Go ahead, Billy, that sorry. Kinda just came, yeah, something that just kind of came to my mind. And this is, I don't have any data around this at all. But this concept that we're talking about, about how you can have all, all of your rooms are important. All of your position rooms are important. But you can definitely kick one to the side if you were able to have these super loaded other positions that kind of build up for it. In the concept of Superflex, right, we just saw one of those tournaments kind of um, just close um, on underdog. How does that change things, right, where quarterbacks are so in- influential there and a wide receiver was cut off to put in a super flex position, which is going to be filled by your quarterback. So I think trying to take these and pivot them to a different space is something that I'm, I, I love doing as well. So um Maybe a conversation for another day, but very interesting for me. Yeah, no, for sure. If I had a guess, 
I would say you would find much more importance at quarterback and running back in super, in, in super flex. And you would see that because it's only two receivers and not three. And typically running backs will give you bigger spikes. You, you probably see more of an anchor wide receiver approach take effect because like your, your top 10 receivers are good, but you know, your RB 15 probably scores more than your wide receiver 15. And that, that definitely matters, but certainly something to, to look into for next time. For now, tell me about bye weeks and why maybe they're overrated at times. Yeah, bye weeks are an interesting conversation. Um, this one, I literally titled it, this one's for the bye week bros. Um, having a little fun at that. Um, but after finishing about like my 100th draft on Underdog across a variety of different plat- um, products, one thing that I kept coming back to was like week 13 being a nuisance, and it's specifically when it came to tight ends um, because – Everything I kept doing was kept pointing me back there. Um, they there was a tweet that Justin Herzig put out about the pyramid of things that we think about when building a roster: ADP, stacking, correlation, all of those various different levers we try to pull. Um, and especially as you get later into the draft, you start to think about those more and more. And while I kept doing that, it kept pointing me at week 13 as I tried to fill out my tight ends later. So I kind of wanted to talk about that. Um, it is interesting the way that they've set up. Um, not they, the NFL has the bye weeks this year. Week 13 has the Ravens, the Bills, the Bears, the Raiders, the Vikings, and the Giants. Um, some juicy players on that week, um, especially when you think about the tight end position too. Um, so really wanted to kind of just talk about what I'm thinking about now. Um, so for me, this really is thinking about like, how do I solve it at the puzzle? First step would be to understand who's relevant and kind of in, into that being kind of who's going to get you stuck um, in that week 13 conundrum. So all of those, the player teams that we listed earlier, plus their bring backs. So if you put a dolphin on the roster, um, and and you're thinking of trying to get a bring back later at that tight end position, and you've already filled out a week 13 tight end. Um, Isaiah likely is probably not a good fit if you're going to try to fill for that bye week, right? And so I just kept coming back into that situation where the Ravens play the Dolphins, the Vikings play the Packers, the Giants play the Rams, and so on, to where there's this it's a juicy set of people, team players that kind of point you towards week 13. So step one would be knowing who everyone is and that kind of gets you towards that. Step two would be knowing what outs you have. So um, thinking about when this is going to come into situation, the situation, like thinking about where else your roster is set up, what other players might be fitting in there. If if you're listening to this call right now or on this, um, listening to this right now, you're a bit of a degenerate like I am and you probably have gotten into the depths of all of these drafts and know where players fall. So you could, should be able to be proactively seeing things happen. Um, so that's one thing is just knowing these outs and proactively knowing your outs and knowing how to get there. And then the second part is it's like knowing it's okay to accept a bye week loss um, at a position that isn't likely to be super fruitful and it's later in the later in the draft. If there's a huge ADP grab that you can get, take it right. Um, there's huge value there potentially on every other week. Um, also. If you think that this is likely to set up um, some uniqueness in the playoffs, if other people are thinking the same way and they're just like, ah, I don't want to buy. Um, so that's something that we are accepting of as well. And the final piece of this is like knowing that other people are likely going to try to avoid their buys as well 
And if you see someone with a week 13 tight end, you probably can push it around the corner um, and get a little, just a half round or two, three, four pick value. But if you do that proactively on drafts, those little incremental values of getting the guy that you want on the front end of the turn or on the back end of the turn um, is super significant across the draft and across 150 drafts. Um, So just these little micro edges that we can get are things that we should be talking about and leveraging up. Yeah, there's a ton here that's definitely impactful. The grouping of week 13 by week tight ends is a plague on all of us because we've all done it. We all have Hawkinson and we forget and we see Cole Komet fall 20 spots past ADP and we're like, what great value. Let me get my tight end too. And then you look and you're like, oh, they're both by week 13. I've just ruined this whole roster. But I, I do think eating a bye week at tight end is fine. And it's it, it can definitely work. I, I had a team recently that it, I almost never do this, but both ADPs ended up being so cheap that I ended up with Hawkinson and Waller, both of them like two rounds after ADP. It's a very unique team at, at the very least, but they're both by, by 13 and it's brutal. And I'm just hoping that they're so good the rest of the other, you know, the other 16 weeks that it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter. I'm going to take a straight zero that week. It's something me and Aaron actually joked about last year because I've, I've, I've always said that if you take Kelsey or Mark Andrews, more specifically last year when you were taking Andrews in like the mid-second, now he's around cheaper, to a der- degree, the bet you're making, like Travis Kelsey scored 260 fantasy points last year. If you're, if you're taking him where he's going now, you're betting he's going to do it again, which theoretically is possible. You don't need another tight end if he's going to do it again and be worth that first round pick. And this is under the assumption you're drafting 150 teams to max out a tournament. The zero on, on the bye week is really not going to matter. It's and, and let's say you do it correctly and, and draft a super cheap guy like, like a Luke Musgrave who has upside. What if he only scores two fantasy points on, on Kelsey's bye week? It, it did nothing for you anyway, and it burned a roster spot. Funny enough, I convinced... Aaron to do this with a team last year or it might have been two years ago where he took Kelsey and with his last round pick he was going to take Mo Cox, and I was like Mo Cox is going to do absolutely nothing for you take any other position and it just so happened that year on Travis Kelsey's bye week Mo Cox caught caught two touchdowns and then the minute it happened I texted Aaron and I was just like I'm so sorry man but the chances of that happening again slim to none and it's definitely, I'm going to say one of the more impactful things that will influence the tight end position this year will be navigating that round six and that round 13. I'm sorry, that week 13 and that, and that what is it, week eight bye. Those are definitely rough, rough groupings for a position with so few players. Yeah, and to go with this uh, is like sorry. the Travis Kelsey is the perfect example too. It's like like this year in particular, best believe the teams that I have taken Kelsey because he's going as like pick five, pick six, right? If I'm drafting him, I'm not drafting another tight end. And it does kind of go hand in hand with the scoring distributions by position group, right? Like if I got Kelsey, I'm like, cool, awesome. I've got the points that I need from tight end plus a little bit more, hopefully in a perfect world, but going, yeah, I might need a little bit more for wide receivers and running backs because of the opportunity cost of taking Kelsey in round one. So 
yeah, those Kelsey teams, it's the only tight end because I'd rather use another spot on the much more valuable running back or wide receivers that can maybe help me get up to that that 14 points per player that I need for the rest of the spots there. It's it's embrace it, right? Like years ago, bye weeks and just regular redraft, right? People would freak out about bye weeks, but there's so much like my my thinking in those leagues was going like that's eight weeks away. There's so much that can happen. Injuries, blah, 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 all this stuff, right? Can't worry about bye weeks. And we should we should adopt that in best ball as well of going like what's what's the point? Like getting minimal production from a backup tight end uh for one week, like it really doesn't move the needle much, especially when we look at just uh points scored uh above like average for the position groups, like tight ends uh score the fewest points above replacement, right? Compared to QBs, running backs, receivers. So Embrace, embrace the zero, especially in tournaments. It's that's the key thing. Tournaments, big tournaments where you're maxing out entries. Embrace it. Yeah, I, I still definitely like taking a second tight end, but hyper cheap because there's always they can slide into flex. Um, it's gonna be very slim, but you know any tight end theoretically can have a two touchdown week and a two touchdown week for any player. It's gonna be a pretty good fantasy week. Um, but yeah, certainly I think the natural evolution of this would be to look at you know clusters of bye weeks in like your receivers and running backs like if i draft seven total receivers and five of them have the same buy does that ruin me um you know or i guess a simpler version you gave us an article billy we already went through it with what's kind of the median scoring you need to be relevant each week but of course you know every grouping of 12 is different and you're not always going to hit that median scoring it would be interesting to see what like a catastrophic floor is like if you have one you can score 140 points every week the whole season but if you score 40 points total one week there's zero percent chance you're you're gonna win it would be very interesting to kind of see like what's the minimum threshold of even one week under this number has just cratered your your chances because i think that would kind of then give you an idea into a logical conclusion for spreading around your team by weeks um, I don't know if that is something that, you know, you would be into. Yeah, I'm I'm interested in every study. <laughs> so, but uh, the, where my brain's going is the, what is the threshold for two tight ends? Uh, one being elite, one being in the back half of the draft, like the super late versus needing two more, which have more substance. And then that three tight end build, um, what is the best way to go that? Because um, I personally wonder if having the the, the bye weeks optimized across three separate weeks gives you the best chance on any one week because you have two guys running routes rather than one guy running routes. But then also, um, am I just trying to split hairs here? So um, lots of questions, but I think these are the type of things that we need to push on to get these micro edges. Yeah, if I had to guess, I would say it's splitting hairs because I'm always going to go back to most tight ends are so dependent on a touchdown that like to, to shove in that third tight end, the chances of them really, or let's say to avoid a guy, let's say you're going to draft three tight ends for sure. Right. And you've already drafted Komet and then you end up with Higby and now you're late and you really want like Michael Mayer, but he has the same bye week as Komet. I wouldn't dodge him. Right. Because the chances that just because you added, let's say, you know, I'll go back to to Musgrave instead. 
or let's say like Mike Gusecki or Trey McBride, any of these guys that go around him, just because they don't have that week 13 bye, even if you have Gusecki and Higby, chance, there's still a good chance neither of them exceed five points. And then what was the point? You know, you, you could have just taken the guy that you think, hey, like if you like, I really believe in, in Michael Mayer. Like this, this guy was an early second round pick to a team that desperately needs a tight end and has plenty of vacated targets. He's a way better value than Dalton Kin- Kincaid. You know, the difference in their cost makes no sense. This guy can easily score 110 fantasy points as a, as a rookie. Why why not draft him? You know, and I would prefer him in that scenario to a Mike Gusecki, a guy that's on a really boring Patriots offense, right? So it's it's definitely something that this is kind of the whole point of this whole show. And a lot of the reason why I really like Billy's content is it inspires you to think further while also giving you some concrete evidence of past success you know he's not it's not giving you an answer it's teaching you how to fish and it's great i totally love it we have one more skill set to learn with billy and that's going to be when to draft running backs in best ball let's hear about it billy yeah awesome well we'll wrap this one up wrap it up with one that i'm really excited about um so i haven't put this one out on twitter yet we'll be going out this week but um this one was inspired from uh hayden winks piece which he was about when is it most optimal to draft a running back in best ball which i thought was awesome where he looked at the zero rb um one rb and like how many cumulative running backs you've drafted at any one point and what the average points were at by that team so i thought that i wanted to really kind of adjust the perspective a little bit and not look at how much that team was producing but how much that those players were producing to the point the team so their individual player contribution so a little bit different perspective on that same concept um and what i found was that we see this massively flat uh, running back dead zone over the last couple years um which start the the first round couple rounds of the draft pat crane has titled those i believe is like the legendary upside running backs he has his website titled that as well um where they just have this level of production that is different um, you're not going to see that in the later parts of the draft. They can kind of do it all. These massive volume, efficiency, touchdowns, these the, the, the league winning type of guys. Um, you see those go off in the first couple rounds. But then it does significantly plummet um, to where essentially rounds 3 through 11. Yeah, 3 through 11 is pretty wild, the distribution. Um, you really don't see a huge difference in what you're getting out of them. Um, last year, we saw a little bit of difference with a pretty big spike in Josh Jacobs and a couple other players in the back half of the, the dead zone that really produced. But um, we didn't see that in BBM2. And if I were to make a bet, I would expect that Josh Jacobs was the anomaly um, more than the year before that was the anomaly. Well, you had um, um, you had like five guys is the problem last year. You had Jacobs, Stevenson, Sanders, right, and Pollard. It was just crazy. It was a crazy year for round seven to nine uh, running back. But go on. I just wanted to add that. Yeah, absolutely. It was this whole pocket of players that pushed back in the draft. Nobody wanted to draft them, but they all spiked. They're all great for you. And um, it has this like massive explosion of, as we all see in these drafts, of this zero RB. Let's go get them in the sixth, seventh, and eighth round style drafting. Um, and so – what I then did after looking at it, these averages by position, I kind of broke I broke it down a level deeper where I used a box and whisker plot, which is one of my favorite ways to look at a distribution. 
and you could really see how players were producing year over year. Uh, not year over year, but like how players were producing within each round. And you can see that there is a huge distribution shift up in those first two rounds, but the ceiling really is the same between rounds three through 11 or so, where you can get these zero RB heroes that we want to call them, these guys that get us those points that we come up later in the draft, but they're also any players in there that don't, they kind of just like wash out or not the complete disappointment. My team is dead um, players. So, but what's awesome is there's these these zero RB, these hero style running backs later in the draft every single year. Josh Jacobs, the, the fact that he went absolutely nuclear was awesome, probably an anomaly. The fact that we saw all of these other players in that range do well, not an anomaly. It was just that year over year, we saw it was good, but and we probably saw four or five of them last year, whereas we probably only typically see two or three of them historically, but it's maybe a shifting draft um, landscape. It's maybe just the year that it was, but there is this sweet spot that exists in those rounds um, year over year. Um, and so I then went to talk about how I'm playing the um, running back market. And so this year really kind of is dependent on where you get in the front half or the back half of the um, draft. But when you land in that front half, that elite wide receiver and then double running back, um, with, with those guys that have that legendary upside style um, potential um, feels awesome. Um, but then if you miss on that, there is a plethora of guys that sit in the back um, of the draft that can fill in that zero running back hero style guy that we need um, to make our rosters get through. Um, but we just have to understand that those guys in the sixth, seventh, eighth round, there is a good chance they'll miss too, whereas those guys in the front of the draft, while their miss is not going to be even remotely close, we're not like dead if they miss. They just we're just not advanced through automatically because we get the superstar kind of potential that they they have. So um, there's pros and cons to either of them. You just kind of understand what you're getting from it each of the each of the, the parts of the draft. Yeah, this is this one's particularly heartwarming for my confirmation bias because as the guys who follow us know. I haven't put this on um, the live streams, but for those who do join us on Discord for the extended show that's not recorded and posting, I kind of drew up like ADP charts like this, similar to this one you have here for Best Ball Mania 3, but not using any numbers, just going by round and kind of saying like, hey, this is kind of how I vibe the value of players here. And the way you, uh, for the Best Ball Mania 2 chart, like my running back chart is just that exactly. It starts at 1%. It goes up in round two and three, drops tremendously and kind of plateaus and then takes a smaller plateau after round 11. I mean, it all makes perfect sense because I have the underdog rankings here, right? Well, look at just running back. So once you get the first three running backs, you know, there's age-related risk with McCaffrey and Eckler and, you know, being a rookie-related risk with Bijan. But once you get past them, I mean, you have like eight bullets at potential RB1s overall. Everyone from like Chubb through Brees Hall. And then, you know, you when you get after them, you're kind of just projecting volume. And you can find the same volume for eight rounds. Like I recently went through all the team data from last year, the year before, and was looking like, hey, like projectable volume. You know, if we're projecting 250 carries plus for Travis Etienne. Right, you're you're projecting the same for Mixon or more. 
probably less for Walker. You're projecting 250 to 300 carries for Dobbins, for Madison, but then you keep going down. Pacheco probably earns 220 carries. Rashad White projects for 250 carries. James Conner projects for 250 carries. Uh, Brian Robinson projects for 250 carries. You know, he's around 11. And you just keep going down. And then and then you, and then you it does fall off. After round 11, now he gets like Khalil Herbert, who probably projects for like 180 carries, right? But now you could also project for crazy touchdown variants in what could be a highly efficient Chicago offense. So yeah, I mean, this grouping of guys from like James Conner to Khalil Herbert, I've just been feasting on them. You know, you like you said with your uh, approach to running back this year, I, I think, you know, where zero RB was the way of the last couple of years because of how we've adjusted ADPs as a whole and really made receivers more expensive. I think we're going to find the hero RB, the anchor RB making a resurgence this year where it's like, hey, like get one of these guys in this range of Chubb to Hall. And then, you know, you can really just start feasting once you hit like David Montgomery onward. And then once you really hit the range of, you know, after Herbert, now we start getting into backups, you know, Elijah Mitchell, Jalen Warren, Tank Bigsby, you lose a lot of value, but then you go even further and you're back to committee backs that, like you said, know what you're getting. You're getting a zero or you're getting a hundred. You're getting a Jeff Wilson who could absorb all of Raheem Moser's work from last year or continue to be hurt again, right? You're getting a Leonard Fournette who could sign somewhere to be a high volume back or essentially no longer plays football. You never really know, but it's it's the variance is pretty much the same as as earlier guys. I think this, you know, to visualize it and see like, oh, historically, this has been proven true. And I think next year, the graph will look similar, but just shifted back two rounds because all the ADPs have shifted back two rounds. So just adjust, take the historical data, look at the current ADPs, project forward and we also have a lot more talented running backs than we've had in years past that are at their age apex. So, you know, I, I think we'll see running back separate a little less than it has in, in years past. Like, yeah, your top six are going to be great. But like running back six through 20, you're not really seeing a difference where, like you said, Josh Jacobs really drove that outlier. And you've pretty much always had the Miles Sanders, the Ramondre Stevenson, so on and so forth. Aaron, I feel like you're going to have similar sentiment as I. Same, same. Uh, in fact, I kind of chuckled a little bit when I was going through Billy's article there because I was going, wow, all the shift in wide receiver ADPs have gone up and we've also noticed running backs going down. I was like, this is crazy. Just early in that article, I'm going, you know, I bet with today, 2023 best ball, you can get the legendary upside running backs in rounds three. And then I finished the article and, Billy literally said that too. So I'm like, ah, say, same wavelength there. And it, it just, it feels, it feels appropriate, right? It feel, that's what we've seen in best ball drafts. And even we've even seen it. If you're like me, if you've done some of your redraft leagues uh, a little early, you're seeing that as well. Like I've done a 10 team league and had Ramondre Stevenson fall to the third round. It's, it's insane. And I gladly take that player. And historically I've been more of the hero running back build. Right. But like this year I go, well, there's only one thing that logically makes sense at this point is to take the running back. That's going to get carries. That's going to get targets. It's going to get overall touches in an offense. And I'm just, I'm having the time of my life getting those guys that 
just a few short years ago would have been tail end first round guys or early second round guys that are now going third round in best ball. Heck yeah. Like sometimes fantasy football and best ball doesn't have to be hard. And especially like the, the dead zone for running backs. I like the part of going like, look, like just after you get your two running backs, just sit out for a while, sit out. There's going to be some running backs that fall because people are then going to continue to reach on receivers, get in on those later rounds. Like, Hey, if your third running back is, you know, maybe round nine, round 10, it's going to be okay. There's going to be the guys that you want to pair with your two legendary upside running backs to win at best ball. It seems to be a winning formula and Billy's got the numbers there. That's the winning formula. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, Billy. I just wanted to pepper in. And then I'll let yeah. you wrap us up with this one. Just to say what you were saying, Aaron, and kind of what this shows is um, like what I do a lot is the the one running back in the first three rounds, two to three of those guys in that round, eight through 11, and one to two guys just tagged on at the end. But your draft boards, whatever your slot is, if you're not taking running backs in rounds eight through 11, you're just missing running back value. But go ahead, Billy. Yeah, and that's I think that's my preferred style as well because we have to remember this is best ball and we're like portfolio drafting. So if this was redraft and I wanted safety in, out of my running back position, I'm gonna like either pick two high ones early or I'm gonna pick a bunch of wide receivers because they're not gonna get hurt, right? But in this concept of best ball and it being a portfolio, I would love to have a collection of those super elites paired up with a combination of guys that could produce a ton of value in rounds seven, eight, nine, 10, 11. Um, and th- that whenever, like of, I understand that not all of them are going to hit, but when it does hit, I'm gaining so much value that um, I do have a real shot at taking down a title. So um, that concept of a portfolio really shifts what we can accomplish and do with these rosters. Yeah, I, I think one of the simplest questions to ask, because the thing is, like, there really is no, there's no Josh Jacobs this year, where the, the the thing that most people miss on Josh Jacobs was if you look at him all the years prior, the profile of a workhorse running back was always there. It just didn't happen for one reason or the other, but it was always there. And then we pushed him down for a combination of not liking the offense and, and perceived competition from just the from like Amir Abdullah and Brandon Bolden like the worst players and then to get you know Josh Jacobs workload last year of over 300 carries and over 60 targets that's that's a monster workload the only guy this year and you also have to pepper in Josh Jacobs was in the peak of his career you know prime age so the only person really that kind of fits that mold is Najee Harris but like he's a 3-4 turn player um and Najee Harris you know it could certainly be in a Josh Jacobs situation where he's in the peak of his career. He's going to get all the volume. People think Jalen Warren is touch competition, but he's not really. But you're not getting the the same discount as you had with Josh Jacobs. So then you just have to look to the simpler uh, approach of it, for whatever role we essentially project for, for this player, if they stay healthy, is it 250 carries and 50 targets? 250 carries and 50 targets is like mid RB2 volume and it's very obtainable even for non-talented players and and maybe they don't get the 50 targets but if they get 280 carries and like 40 30 targets it's still this it's still relatively the same and you know yeah a lot of these guys in round five do that like Alexander Madison projects for that 
and he was one of my favorite players in the seventh round. In the fifth round, I pretty much never draft him anymore because, again, you know, you can project that for a lot of these guys. You can still project that for David Montgomery, even though it's gross, you know, for Rashad White, James Conner, you know, like I said, Brian Robinson. Just go down the list. Even Samaj P. Ryan to a degree, but I doubt it. You have a lot of options. Um, even like, you know, not as much volume, but even Damian Harris. I mean, if he just slides into Devin Singletary's role, Devin Singletary had 180 carries and 50 targets last year. He was used. I mean, he was the primary back there and he was a value at cost. So yeah, it's, I, I think running back much like tight end is a much more solved equation in regards to when do we draft them? And like you said, Billy, this is a game of, of exposure. Understand where to draft them, have exposure and then let variants take the wheel. Because as nice as it would have been to have drafted 150 teams with Josh Jacobs on them last year, nobody does that. No, no Nobody knew that much for sure. And even if you just had 15% of teams with, with Josh Jacobs, that would have been enough to legitimately have a chance of winning serious money. Um, any final thoughts from either of you for running backs? Aaron, anything else? I'm going to take that deafening silence. <laughs> we'll take not, it as we're good. We'll, we're good. It's, we'll edit that out there. That's but. fine. It's like, you know, it's like when dinner gets real quiet because the food's really good. No one's talking anymore. I guess I just slammed that take so hard. But it's um all right. So, Billy, any any thoughts on, you know, kind of like the five articles or anything you think upcoming or do you do you have any like strong player takes that maybe you've come up with after writing all of this um strong player takes is more on the lines of get these positional tiers i want to be the cheapest version of all these positional tiers so my biggest player take is around Taylor, darren waller this year i think that there's a tier one travis kelsey and then there's a really good but not great um tier of um tight ends and i feel like darren waller is set up to cook this year as well as he's one of the back half he's at the back half of that tier so um he's a guy that i keep seeing like hammer 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 every time he falls um so that's something that i've been doing um as for these articles uh i'm gonna do a version of this for wide receivers um already started on that process so Take um, definitely be on the lookout for that. And if anyone has any ideas or wants me to run down any studies, definitely reach out to me on Twitter. Um, this is where people have questions. This is where awesome stuff comes out of. So that's where all of my stuff comes from. Is I have a question and I want to see what the data says about it. Yeah, here I'll pull it up. It's uh, they can find you at uh, NFL underscore Billy underscore Jones. As you know, the after listening to you for you know this last hour. Your Twitter profile pic makes a ton of sense. This dude just has numbers and graphs and charts running through his brain at all times. Driving must be a nightmare for you. You're probably just calculating everything. But um, hopefully you commute via public transit or like a bicycle. But what you said about Darren Waller, I do agree. Like I said, the last like week, I've been really just looking through from a very broad sense. I'm not the type of guy to write uh, per projections i think the practice can be very misleading but i think you can make a lot of common sense conclusions from looking at you know historical production for a team and the one thing that screams out when you look at the giants last year was a clear need for consolidation one of the least consolidated passing games in in the nfl cycled in a lot of guys and there's screaming value for this offense to focus on less players 
you know, when your running back is your most highly targeted player for a team that's also at the high end of the league in rush attempts, it tells you that there's room for a receiver. And we, it's something I mentioned last week. I have a theory, you know, if the only negative thing you can say about a player is, well, what if they get injured? Then it's probably a good pick. Because the only negative thing against Waller, the last time we saw Waller fully healthy, he was more than capable of taking on over 100 targets a season, one of few tight ends capable of doing it. And you know at the very least the Giants are going to give him every third down, every red zone, every high leverage opportunity is going to him. And of all these tight ends outside of Kelsey and Andrews, he's one of the few that genuinely will earn that volume. It's just an injury risk. You know, he's a little older and he's been unhealthy for two years. So we'll see. But I think the value, like you said, he falls cheap cheap enough and with an exposure portfolio, you got to take swings at that Darren Waller upside, you know, considering everything we've said today, um, you know, but because of the risk involved, if this was like, like James Conner, I'm much more comfortable just hammering in despite the injury risk, because again, the only argument against James Conner is injury because tight end doesn't separate as much. I'm not going to like just draft Darren Waller every time you can still probably make it work without him. But he's definitely a huge leverage point at tight end. Um, and then, yeah, it's I'm definitely interested to see what else you write, what you come up with as the offseason goes. I think if anyone has ideas, definitely send them Billy's way. He's uh, he's made some very good stuff. Aaron, any any final thoughts on the information Billy's provided us? The information is great. Billy is criminally underfollowed on Twitter. Again, his Twitter handle is at NFL underscore Billy underscore jones that's also going to be in the description too so make sure go and support him he's a friend of the show does great work and it's something that's missing a lot on twitter twitter is a place for hot takes but billy says no no we're going to bring good actionable advice and uh and articles to to work with there so support billy support the show as well if you're listening to it on youtube Make sure that you like this video and comment. If comment what you liked about what Billy had to say, comment if there's something you disagree with. We're all about conversations here. And also on Discord too. We do this show live on Discord. Join the Player Profiler Discord server. That is playerprofiler.com slash chat. You'll be able to join the Discord server. We have conversations. We'll take questions from people after the show. And is there anything else, Billy, that you want to mention before we uh, before we end this show? No, this is perfect. Um, you, you got it all. Perfect, perfect. So from Chris, from Aaron, and from our guest, Billy, we bid you adieu. Until next time.